0: Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we are at times intemperate, obviously obstreperous and invariably incredulous, but we are not even mad. Today we speak of an oathkeeper conviction, Christian graphic design disinclinations, and iffy laptop revelations. We promise to relish the disagreement because we are not even mad. So who are we this week as we speak of the seditious and the delicious? I am joined by two guests who are judicious. David French, senior editor of The Dispatch, contributing writer for The Atlantic. Now, David, the Supreme Court case we're talking about isn't masterpiece bake shop, but I think I need to establish, are you a cake guy or a pie guy?
1: (laughs) I'm going to have to go with option three, cobbler. Oh yes, as a, co- as, yes. As a as a Southerner, I got to go with cobbler, specifically
0: peach cobbler. What is the difference between cobbler and pie in a sentence? I don't know. They just it's fruitier. there's no
2: difference. There is no difference. That was a cheat, and it's silly because he means pie, and he's pretending that pie and cobbler are different, and they're not.
0: And the voice you heard there holding David French to account, as she does, is Lara Bazelon, a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, where she directs a criminal and racial justice clinic. So cobbler, which is fake, we just found out, pie or cake, Lara?
2: So unlike David, I have a real third alternative, which is icing, preferably chocolate icing. And I also want those roses on it, the red ones that are fake, but also made out of sugar.
0: I am Mike Pasco, host of The Gist. I would say uh, cake almost all the time, except pecan pie, which is the pie of cakes. And my least favorite cake is pineapple upside down cake, which is the cake of pies. Anyway, let's go not to a bake shop, but to another Colorado case with maybe a similar issue. David French, take us there.
1: All right. Well, to introduce this topic, let's start with Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson and a pretty interesting hypothetical question that she asked during oral arguments this week at the Supreme Court.
0: My dearly departed grandmother was clear that she only wanted to provide this kind of nourishment for people who share our same religious heritage. So I call these products Grandma Helen's Protestant provisions.
1: With that hypothetical, where she talked about a fictional woman named Grandma Helen who was making food only for people who really agreed with her religious point of view, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson highlighted a key question at the heart of a Supreme Court case called 303 Creative versus Elenus. What is the difference between providing a service and engaging in speech? Lori Mason owns 303 Creative, a website design company. She hoped to design wedding websites, but she won't design websites that celebrate messages or events that she finds objectionable, and that includes same-sex weddings. The state of Colorado says that she's violating Colorado's public accommodation statute, which requires businesses to provide services to people without regard to, among other things, their race, sex, sexual orientation, or disability. Mason says she doesn't discriminate on the basis of status. She'll happily serve any customer who belongs to any protected class under Colorado law. She just won't say whatever they want her to say. But is designing a wedding website the same thing as engaging in speech, or is it more like providing a service, such as making food for a wedding or providing chairs for the reception? I think Lori Mason is engaging in protected speech, not providing a service. My colleagues might disagree. So, Laura, I'll throw this to you directly. Do you think Lori Mason is engaging in speech or providing a service, or is that the wrong question entirely?
2: How do you see this thing? Oh, David, I don't even know the ways to count how we disagree here. No, that's not the right question. No, she's not engaging in speech. There were so many hypotheticals thrown out in this oral argument, some of which were quite frankly, offensive, and we could spend the whole show talking about them. But my point is, they were bandied about with such vigor because there were no underlying facts. There's no harm. There's no facts. There's no trial. This woman never made a website. So my first question is, why was this case even accepted by the Supreme Court? It just smacks of them having a very specific kind of agenda. Because as I said, it's completely hypothetical, this idea that she'd have this website that a gay couple would ask her to provide this service. And it's a service. It's not her engaging in speech. It's her essentially having a website template that she's offering to the general public, which is why the Colorado law comes into play. But then if we put all of that aside, you know, you had indicated in your opening remarks that this is different or could be distinguished from, say, baking a cake. But as we all know, we had masterpiece cake and it didn't go the way that conservatives wanted. And that was the exact issue. The court ended up disposing of it on other grounds. I feel like this is kind of an end run with the idea that they have simpler facts, which is to say almost none. And then they get to play with hypotheticals for a long time and then do what we all know they're going to do, which is decide six to three, that this is protected speech and essentially sanitize what I see as LGBTQ bigotry.
0: Well, it is interesting in this case, uh, in this hypothetical case, without a real victimization, that there were so many hypotheticals. There were more hypos than wash up on a New Jersey beach in the 80s. That's what you guys call them, right? You lawyer types, hypos. (laughs) There's so many hypotheticals, you get short in the hypos. And please respect the hypos, the the justices say. I was getting a little hypoglycemic because (laughs) there were so many sweet hypos in the air. Some of them were great. I found some of the hypos entertaining, not so many of them perfectly illuminating. I have a rule of hypotheticals, which is that you can only change one of the planks of the hypothetical, but the justices were changing both. So they weren't just saying, what if a web designer wouldn't design for a disabled person? They asked that. What if a web designer wouldn't design a web for a black person? They were also saying, what if the bassist of a wedding band wouldn't do that? What if the baker of a cookie or a photographer in the mall wouldn't photograph a disabled person? So both ends of the hypothetical were getting hypotheticalized which is sort of like a pun. You're allowed to change one word, but you can't change both words in a sentence to make a pun. So they were kind of spinning out of control. And I was wondering why. I heard, David, you talk to your colleague, Sarah Isger, on your excellent podcast, Advisory Opinions. And I recognized a lot of what you were saying, your frustration, because your thesis was essentially that the justices were acting like a Senate confirmation, kind of grandstanding and trying to put horrible hypotheticals are horrible situations in the mouths of the lawyers and the lawyers knew to take it or not take it, but they weren't exactly following the law. I thought that the reason that they were engaging in hypotheticals was eventually they would stumble on one that was illuminating. And the one that resonated a little bit with me was, Well, if this person doesn't want to engage in a specific speech act, what's to stop a publisher from not wanting to engage in, they'll do business with anyone of any gender or any race, but what about if their business is, we need you to publish a book? That's an maybe interesting hypothetical if the publisher is, say, just a service that binds any old manuscript that comes through. And so this is where, I think I side with Lara in this one. I think they're more a business. And if they're providing a service for the public, it's not really about their free speech. They can do whatever they want if they weren't selling their service to the public. It's more about denying this service that I think they're committed to do, certainly under Colorado law, once they hang out their shingle and they say, well, this is a service we provide for everyone.
1: But a publisher wouldn't be obligated to publish a book in support of or in opposition to same-sex marriage. Um, under any real conception of the First Amendment that exists right now. So publishers would not, in fact, be required to publish, even if it's authored by somebody else, a message they don't agree with. And we have publishing imprints all over the United States of America that have a perspective, that they have a point of view. Now, they don't discriminate on the basis of the status of the author. They don't... But if they're going to say, we're not going to publish books with X point of view, or we will, we are centered around publishing books with Y point of view, that's completely their prerogative. And that's why I think the services versus speech distinction is really everything in this case, because what you have is previous uh, case law, a case called Piggy Park. I love that very vivid name, Piggy Park, involved a claim in the segregation era in the Jim Crow era by a business person who said, I have a First Amendment right protected by the Free Exercise Clause of the Constitution to not serve black customers. That was the argument in the Piggy Park case. And the Supreme Court called that patently frivolous. That was the phrase that they used, patently frivolous, to say that the First Amendment is going to protect his ability not to serve barbecue sandwiches to black customers. So services clearly... A public accommodation statute is gonna bind a business into providing services regardless of status. But the question when it comes is, here is is it speech when you design a website, even if the website is advertising somebody else's event? And in the lower court, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, when it ruled against the artist, called what she was doing pure speech. I mean, that was literally she, the, the the majority called it pure speech. And then Uh, said, well, no, but we can compel it anyway under this really wild theory that said that, well, every artist is kind of a monopoly in their own work, and that there would be a compelling governmental interest in sort of cracking open that monopoly. Very weird. And it was telling that nobody was defending, not even Colorado was defending that Tenth Circuit opinion. But what was really interesting to me was the hypotheticals were disappointing to me for this reason, Mike, they were they were trying to do what those of us who've litigated in the free speech arena are are accustomed to hearing from undergrads but not from judges and what undergrads will typically do is they'll say what you mean is if your argument wins then and then they'll talk about some person who engages in horrible speech terrible speech what you're saying is that they should have the ability to speak too and it's sort of a way that tries to make you look awful by sort of saying, well, if your legal principle wins, terrible people will get to speak. And that was a lot of the hypos, which is not the way free speech arguments go. Um, Free speech arguments in a sophisticated legal environment don't involve, oh, oh my goodness, if you win, terrible people will get to speak. Um, Many of the most potent free speech cases that have ever been uh, crafted have involved protecting the rights of really bad people to speak. Uh, That's not the way this is supposed to go. And that's what was so disappointing and why I compared it to a Senate hearing. It was almost like they were saying to Kristen Wagoner, the advocate for 303 Creative, or flipping it around to the advocate for uh, Colorado, um, look at the terrible people are going to win if you win.
2: Just to look back at some precedent from the court, I'm curious to know how you distinguish the fair case where the issue was whether or not to allow military recruiters on, I think it was Harvard's campus because the Harvard administrators objected or the students objected to having the military there. And the question was, are you forcing the campus essentially to speak by hosting military recruiters? And I think it was the Roberts Court said, no, you're not. This is really just about you being a venue for these folks to come and give their point of view and the students are free to sign up for ROTC or not. And since we are now in the land of hypothesizing, I guess, to me, it's not an analogy between this woman's website and a publisher. It's more about, does the paper company get to decide? Because it's really that anodyne. You're really providing this skeleton upon which people drape the clothing, or in this case, the wedding invitation. So I guess that's the first question that I have for you. And then the second question is, you just said that the logical extension of this is essentially more bigotry. And there really isn't, in my opinion, any way to draw a line if this is truly speech, then you're absolutely right. You can not have to design websites that promote the unions of disabled people or interracial couples. And I guess I'm just not really sure why we're carving out this huge exception for a law that was designed specifically to say, if you hang up a shingle and provide a service, you have to provide it to everyone.
1: Well, first, let's be really clear. The facts are not that she denies service to gay customers. The facts are that she, in fact, welcomes customers of every background, uh, of every category protected by the um, Colorado Public Accommodation Statute. So she welcomes all customers. She just doesn't welcome all messages. And that's a very different distinction, say, from Newman versus Piggy Park, which said, we don't welcome this category of customers. And that's a, that's a different thing from saying we welcome every category of customers, but we will not design a website that advances a message that we disagree with. And when you talk about- Can it's I not... just
2: interrupt you for one second to ask you a question, but to follow up on what you just said, I, I can follow you, but going back to this fair case, that's sort of like saying, okay, military recruiters, you can come here but you can't talk about recruiting people. We welcome you here, but we don't welcome your message. I mean, what's the distinction there?
1: Well, I think the distinction, I think you're looking at the wrong case. The correct case here is the Hurley case, which involved a parade by an Irish-American group and an Irish-American LGBT group wanted to participate in the parade. And the Supreme Court said, no, the parade itself is an expressive occasion That has a particular message that the parade organizers want to be communicated in this expressive event. And essentially, this case is even beyond Hurley because they're saying, we don't just want to be included in the parade, parade organizers, we want you to help us write our own banner and use your artistic ability to create the banner that we want to use in the parade. And I think that case is much more applicable I think, honestly, the fair case, the fair case has a lot of problems. My One of my concerns for fair from the beginning was that the hovering over fair was not, this was not a pure free speech analysis. It was hovering over fair was the national security interest. In other words, the parade of horribles. And that's when you, when you have the parade of horribles that begins to overcome the free speech interest. That's when you start to have a lot of bad law and free speech And so that's that's what I'm concerned about with 303 Creative, with all of these hypotheticals, which, by the way, they were all hypotheticals. They were not examples taken from real life of other states that don't have the same public accommodation statute that what has occurred in other places. None of that stuff that we know of that was was the subject hypothetical has occurred really that we know of anywhere else. So they were just making this stuff up. And and that's that's one of my concerns with the hypothetical style of argument, which Lara, I'm I'm not sure how much it frustrated you in law school, but it frustrated me to no end that we would spend hours talking about not real world circumstances to resolve real world disputes.
0: Right, right. And that frustrated me with this case. There are no black Santas uh, letting black kids with Klan robes sit on their laps. What the hell are we talking about? Uh, I guess what I'm. Gleaning from this analysis is that the Supreme Court unanimously will allow a parade of horribles, but won't compel you to hold the banner in that parade. If I'm if I'm (laughs) if I'm understanding Hurley and hypotheticals correctly, but I will say that let's take it just in terms of the actual thing that's going on, which is some Christian, almost all Christians, as far as I could tell. Maybe there's some Orthodox Jewish service providers do not want to provide the service in advancement of not gay people getting married, but people engaging in a gay marriage. I think that's sad. I think it's sad. And I think it's more than sad. I think that the state can intervene and say, if you have a, there is a gay couple and they're like, well, we're going to get married, but the bass player in our band said, no, the wedding invite, the, the wedding planner found out and said, no, the, website designer said no all these people are saying no and refuse to service us for our state sanctioned event the state can't do anything about it well colorado says they can and i'm a big free speech believer but i'd have to say in that case there's such a there's such a close association between the status of the person a gay person And the speech itself, a gay marriage, that it's almost inextricable. It's close to me as saying, well, we're not discriminating against a black person. We're discriminating against a black person's advocacy of the Civil Rights Act, let's say. It becomes pretty much discrimination against the person.
1: I would say, well, two things. One, I've learned through long uh, experience in free speech conversations that when someone says, I believe in free speech, but only pay attention to what comes after the butt. Let me say this. Again, the question isn't can the caterer, and this was very explicitly stated in the oral argument, can a caterer refuse? that? And, and Kristen Wagner said, if it's a caterer at issue, I'm not here <laughs> because the provision right. of services was not, is not the key issue. The key issue is, is this speech? And it's hard for me to grasp an argument. And and Laura, I don't think the facts are that the websites are just all templates, that it's just a plug and play. That was discussed as part of the hypotheticals, not actually the 303 creative business model itself, that if you're using your artistic ability to create a website that has words on it, that has images on it, that is custom designed for the specific individuals involved, the argument that that is not protected speech, I think actually that is the thing that cracks open the possibility of compelled speech in circumstances that we really don't want to see that happen. So um, I'm the question to me is, is it speech to design a custom website for a wedding? And I think the answer to that is yes. And then in that circumstance, this idea that the government can come in and compel it is deeply problematic.
2: I think you pointed to the problem that goes back to my original point, which is what the hell was this case doing in front of the Supreme Court? We don't know any of the facts. There are no facts. Justice Kagan brought up multiple times that in her experience, and she cited to her law clerks getting married, these websites are completely functionary. They are essentially fields that you fill in. I don't know about y'all, but I had to make my own website with Squarespace, and I had someone with Squarespace do all of that, and then I did all of the content myself. The analogy that I would draw is they would say, I really don't like mouthy Jewish criminal defense lawyers, so I'm just not going to provide you with these templates, Laura. Go somewhere else. It seems really similar. You and I can debate that, but the problem is we don't know. Why don't we know? because it's not a real case. This is someone who sued preemptively with the very point of, I think, making a precedent that will stretch. It's not a parade of horribles. It's a logical extension to interracial marriages to people who are disabled. I love that Kristen Wagner said, I wouldn't be here if we were talking about a caterer. I call bullshit. She's gonna be back next year with the caterer.
1: Just as the Supreme Court won't rule until this fall, this will wait until we return To talk about a different DC court case, the conviction of Oathkeeper Stuart Rhodes.
2: Welcome back to Not Even Mad. Here is Edward L. Tarpley, defense attorney to Stuart Rhodes, right after the Oathkeeper leader was convicted of seditious conspiracy by a Washington, D.C. federal jury.
1: We feel like that um, uh, we presented a case which uh, showed through evidence and testimony that uh, Mr. Rhodes did not commit the crime of seditious conspiracy. Uh, there was no evidence introduced to indicate that there was a plan to uh, attack the Capitol.
2: Rhodes is the Justice Department's biggest scalp thus far. He and his Oathkeeper co Kelly Meggs, were the first to be convicted of conspiracy in the January 6th attacks. Nearly everyone else went down on far less serious charges of civil disorder, assaults, remaining in a restricted area, and, my favorite, illegal parading. And it's not just any old conspiracy. It's the really bad kind, a seditious conspiracy. And that means a plot to overthrow the government. Rhodes is facing a far longer prison sentence, a maximum of 20 years, although it's likely to be much less than those meted out to the few convicted of violently assaulting the police. And yet, Stuart Rhodes didn't go inside the Capitol building. He didn't order any Oath Keepers to enter the Capitol building. And as you just heard his lawyer say, there wasn't any evidence that he formulated a specific plan of attack. Lest you think that I'm apologizing for this race-baiting schmuck who I frankly think is really gross, I could promise you that I'm not. He won't be missed by any of us who live in the world of the sane. But the verdict against Stuart Rhodes unsettles me as someone who has defended people in federal court, looking at extremely long prison terms. Just because I think about how relatively easy it would be to prove almost any case of seditious conspiracy, I say that knowing that the government doesn't bring them that often, But they could, and the people that they could bring them against worries me. For example, people protesting in Black Lives Matter. So, David, you're a lawyer and a civil libertarian. Are you at all concerned about this verdict?
1: I'm going to say that it does concern me. Uh, As we just went through, I'm a big believer in free speech, including speech that I'm really going to dislike. And one of the things uh, that is abundantly clear about American free speech law is you can advocate for the overthrow of the government that's protected by the Constitution of the United States. You can sit here, you can, you can engage in a lot of speech designed to motivate people to overthrow the government. Um, there's even a famous case involving somebody who said during the height of the Vietnam War, if I'm drafted and I get a rifle, first thing I'm going to do is shoot President Johnson. Protected speech, protected speech. So there's a lot of protection for the ability to criticize the government and to criticize even the American system itself and to advocate for the the overthrow of the American system. And there are good reasons why we do that. You know, um, the the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass called free speech the moral renovator of society and government. Uh, it's called the dread of tyrants. And this is when he was um, asking for Boston to be opened up to abolitionist speech. And so the for for this country to be open to internal critique, as it must. And it's one of the only ways we can improve as a people. We have to be open to internal critique in the sharpest of ways. Now, when that turns into aiding and abetting actual criminal activity, that's when you're going to draw the line. And would this case have been brought but for the January 6th attack? And I think the answer to that is no. No, it would not have been brought but for the January 6th attack. Well, then you might be listening and say, well, but there's the January 6th attack, David. <laughs> that doesn't that change things? Doesn't this mean that there was something more than just posturing and LARPing and all of this? That there was actual planning. Yes, maybe. Yes, maybe. And, and, and that's, but I'm not yes for sure on seditious conspiracy. And I, and I do think that on appeal, the really interesting question is going to be, did the prosecution, prosecution sufficiently tie A to B? Did it sufficiently tie all of this talk about overthrowing the government, all of everything, to the actual violent attack on January 6th? If the reality is that the the, the attack on January 6th and all of the alleged conspiracy, they were sort of more like two ships heading in the same direction, but one ship went into the Capitol and the other one didn't, I think that that's not seditious conspiracy, but if that there was a sufficient tie between all of the alleged planning and the actual entry of the ship, so to speak, into the Capitol, then you've got seditious conspiracy. But it is not, I, I to me, it is not open and shut at all that this is actual seditious conspiracy, and I do think people who have free speech concerns should, in fact be paying very close attention to this and, and holding the DOJ's feet to the fire in showing that this was actual, what we had was actual conspiracy and not just inflammatory speech.
0: So it does seem that they had some plans. And I think what reading this as uh, from my jury box of my, you know, uh, breakfast table while I read the coverage, it did seem what the government was alleging and proved, according to the jury, is that there was something of a free-floating conspiracy that didn't exactly say the exact form the conspiracy would take. But I do have to say, in this case, that there's a we have phrases like, you know, this is a perfect example or a classic example or the textbook example of the law. And the reason that we have to have those phrases is that sometimes we convict someone, On an interpretation of the law that might be other than textbook. So maybe that's what happened here. Perhaps it is not the perfectly buttoned down example of a textbook, uh, seditious conspiracy charge, but certainly good enough and close enough and plausible enough. And let's also say the jury wasn't just railroaded. They picked and choose between different charges. And some of the defendants got off on some of the charges. And I think all of the defendants got off on at least one charge, except maybe one who was only charged with one or two things. So, I think it was a proper application of the law.
2: So this is interesting. I feel like I agree with you and I agree with David for different reasons. So I feel like what David is saying is that when he talks about these two ships that are headed in the same direction, but to dock in different places, that there just isn't a perfect match between the amorphous conspiracy that these gas bags were ranting and raving about while they were stuffing garlic bread in their mouths at the Olive Garden and the actual overthrow or attempted overthrow of the Capitol. And what you're saying is, yes, and the evidence was absolutely good enough for two ships in the same direction, two separate ports. And I think you're both right, and that's exactly what makes me nervous. It's how easy it is to prove a case like this when the idea of seditious conspiracy is so amorphous that it doesn't actually have to be a specific plan that was designed and placed into effect by the same actors. And federal law absolutely allows that and always has, which is why this has always made me nervous. I just feel like the potential for overreach is enormous, especially with precedents like Stuart Rhodes, who's just this odious human being. And as David says, these cases often turn on odious people saying and doing odious things things. So who's next after him is kind of where my mind goes. And maybe it's not someone so odious, but someone who the government really and truly despises, and they can do this amorphous mismatch and get away with it. And to David's point about the court of appeals, I think it's going to be a slam dunk upholding the verdict for the government on appeal in the DC circuit, because the statute, at least as I read it, is so permissive.
0: Yeah, except to so permissive and so easy to get a conviction, except you have to have a set of circumstances where there's actually sedition and when there is actually or, you know, far down the road of an overthrow of the government and a person loudly and vocally and over and over again advocating for it. What I suggest is that if at the time someone said, uh, I think President Johnson should be shot if then President Johnson were shot and it turned out that the guy saying I think President Johnson should be shot had a group called the President Johnson Shooters who trained for the general idea of shooting President Johnson, I bet that case law might be different. Oh, for
1: sure. I mean, if you actually have, if if you can actually outline the conspiracy and the attempt and Absolutely. Um, The the question- It seems close like that happened here. Well, but see, this is where some of Laura's facts are interesting, that he didn't go inside the Capitol building. He didn't order the Oath Keepers to enter the Capitol. He didn't formulate a specific plan of attack. So normally, if you're talking about, say, a a bank robbery case, for example, where you actually prosecute somebody for an attempt before there is uh, an actual robbery, let's say, for example, then you're often going to have evidence of We have, there's our specific plan of attack. Here was the, we're doing it in such and such time. Here's our, here is the, here is the A, the B, the C, the D, the E, and the F. And what ends up happening on January 6th, and look, I am not saying he doesn't deserve to be convicted. I am saying that this, there are elements of this story and elements of this case that are pinging my civil liberty side that say, there are parts of this that are that are worrisome and so if you yell about that you you want to take the country back you've got your weapons cash you've got a bunch of your guys there and you you've really put them in this position where in my view the question was really realistically more was this going to happen no matter what or did the oath keepers who were there because of all of the things that he said then join into this mob surge. And the fact that they joined into this mob surge, did that mean the seditious conspiracy was underway and sort of their concrete attempt to complete it? Or was this something where they were there venting, yelling, screaming, LARPing, and then the mob surge occurs? And, And under both circumstances, they should be prosecuted. So nobody's sitting here saying that there shouldn't be a prosecution, particularly of the people who entered the building, right? But under what what is what is that prosecution? When was Stuart Rhodes? How much responsibility does he bear for the stack that is was taking that was going in there? Was this stack going in there, no matter what, or did the stack go in there because the mob surged? How much does that matter? Um, and because of the gravity of a seditious conspiracy charge. I want to see the Court of Appeals flesh this out with
0: extreme particularity. And I would just say the r and LARPing should stand for riot planning, not role-playing. <laughs> right. That's what they were doing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we are now going to move on to last but not least, topic number three, the Twitter files starring Matt Taibbi and Elon Musk. See you back in a moment.
0: we're back with Not Even Mad. Journalist, critic, provocateur Matt Taibbi teased his Substack subscribers late last week with an announcement and an apology. Quote, it's about to get weird in here as he unveiled what he called the Twitter files. Working with Twitter's current management, i.e. Elon Musk, presumably, Taibbi discussed that site's October 2020 decision to suppress access to a New York Post article about the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. Taibbi's Twitter reportage included links to internal discussions at the time of the decision where Twitter employees, names, emails, and social media addresses unredacted, debated whether to limit access to the Post story in the face of what the FBI regarded as an unspecific threat Threat of hacking. Tybee disclosed that, quote, in exchange for the opportunity to cover a unique and explosive story, I had to agree to certain conditions. But he never laid out what those conditions were. I'm not sure what the Twitter files actually said. There's also a late breaking update that I also couldn't quite parse. It was about Jim Baker, who was once lawyer, former general counsel to the FBI, then worked for Twitter, and has just been fired. I don't really get it. At least we do know what the Trump is fear. And many conservatives say the Twitter files say. Here's Tucker Carlson with that thesis statement. What we learned on Friday is that big tech works aggressively and in secret with government
1: agencies to subvert the outcome of what the rest of us assumed were free and fair elections.
0: Mm, I don't know. But we do know that there was some truth to the Hunter Biden laptop story. Hunter Biden did leave his laptop behind for repairs at a Delaware shop. The FBI was alerted. The laptop was then shared by Rudy Giuliani and the Trump campaign. Might something on the laptop have been part of a hack? Maybe we don't know. And we do know that the bones of the New York Post story were, I don't know, let's put it this way. No more inaccurate than thousands of stories that get presented to the public, which wind up somewhere between gospel truth and Murdochian exaggeration. David French, you have written about this story and the First Amendment and how the Trumposphere is reacting to the Twitter files. I want you to take me there. But first, just tell me what you thought of Twitter's original laptop suppression initiative in October of 2020. And tell me if you regard the Twitter files as belonging to the top top shelf or destined for the circular file.
2: And David, before you weigh in, can you reassure sure the listeners that you're okay after the severe dragging over the weekend?
0: Yes. Tell us of your dragging.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. Elon Musk did not like an article or piece I wrote in The Atlantic that said, in essence, wait a minute. um, Despite what Elon Musk has said and despite what Tucker Carlson has said, this is not a First Amendment issue. There is no government censorship here. What the Twitter files reveal was that Twitter made a decision on its own to, um, in one case, remove some content at the request of the Biden team, which was Biden was not president then. He was a private citizen running a campaign, which is a private entity, uh, asking them to remove some pornographic pictures of Hunter. Um, And then it reacted on its own to the New York Post story. And what was interesting about that uh, the Twitter files is the dog that didn't bark was you were not seeing communications from say the FBI to Twitter saying take that story down. Uh, you can that that is that is hacked information. Take that story down. What you saw was Twitter scrambling incoherently to take the story down, which I believed at the time was a mistake. I still believe it was a mistake that the proper response to the story was, quite frankly, to expose it to scrutiny, not to suppress it. Because the laptop, which later proved to be almost certainly real, there was a really weird story behind the laptop, just a really weird story. Um, Like a
0: blind repairman.
1: A blind repairman, and the laptop left, and then it gets in Rudy Giuliani's hands, and then Rudy takes it. And You know, there was reporting that Fox News said no. There was reporting that Wall Street Journal said no. The New York Post runs it. And then there's reporting that one of the people who wrote the story didn't want his name on the story when it ran. So it was a mess. And then the other thing was, what did it reveal? And, And there's a reason why more people are talking about Twitter right now than they're talking about the actual laptop, because the laptop didn't really reveal a lot other than Hunter Biden was a really struggling drug addict with a lot of humiliating content about Hunter Biden but the part about matching Hunter Biden's uh you know career sort of as a making money off his last name with his father that part was really lacking so that's why 2 years from now we're still talking about Twitter more than we're talking about the actual laptop and my view on the Twitter files was it showed us that from what we were viewing from the outside which was incoherence and a chaotic process that Jack Dorsey intervened to reverse within about 48 hours was exactly what was happening on the inside something incoherent and chaotic that was taking place largely outside of Jack Dorsey's view until he weighed in and from that standpoint it was an interesting story to me to see that what seemed what was happening what what it looked like f- from the outside was also what it looked like from the inside.
2: Yeah, David, when I read your piece, it was so sane and succinct and compelling. I couldn't (laughs) understand why the reaction from, I guess, mostly right side Twitter was the way that it was. And maybe you can talk about that because I feel like it's interesting in and of itself. But can I do some armchair psychiatry, even though I'm not a psychiatrist because my mother is, and get into the mind of Jack Dorsey and some of the folks who were working for him at the time and speculate about this decision, which I agree with you, was really wrongheaded. I wonder if they were worried, essentially, that they were going to be the James Comey of the 2020 election. And by that, I mean, obviously, as we remember, in 2016, there was this October surprise where James Comey told us that the contents of yet another really disturbed man's laptop, that would be Anthony Weiner, might contain some extremely damaging information about then presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. And a lot of people believe that the election really was essentially decided because Jim Comey made that disclosure and it ended up, of course, being a complete nothing burger. I think we can argue about whether that was outcome determinative, but it certainly didn't help in an election that was extremely, extremely close.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly what was going on. I think it's a a similar calculation was made by Comey. What if I get this wrong and eh, Trump won't win? So I'll just uh, issue this proclamation. And let's just say Jack Dorsey, does seem to be mostly cut out of the decision-making, which is maybe interesting from internal Twitter dynamics perspective. But they're saying, okay, if we're right and this really was hacking, then we're fine, we're golden. If we're wrong and Biden wins, well, that's where we are right now. And I guess Matt Taibbi writes a story that we're saying is mostly exculpatory. But if we're wrong and Trump wins, we're screwed. We're screwed if we put this up on the web and Trump wins, we will never hear the end of it um, if we allowed some hack story on, on our website that, you know, maybe doesn't even have to decide the election, just has to have enough fuel that people can point to us and say, you were warned and you still decide the election. So that's why they did what they did. They had a rather poor process. I would say that Tucker's point of claiming that the election wasn't free and fair, it was Reposted the post story was reposted two days later. You know, Jack Dorsey came in October 16th. The post story was up for everyone to see. Good people poked holes in it, pointing out that not even the first or second string New York Post writers wanted to touch the story and that Bannon really was playing it as an October surprise. But you know, I also think, uh, uh, I want you in here in a second, David, but to me, this thing has become it's very interesting. It has a little like the ring from Lord of the Rings that whoever possesses it gets so uh, warped that they have that they're always shown to be in extremis, which is to say as soon as you get a little part of this story, right? Aha, there really was a laptop. That side goes way too far and say and you stole the election. And as soon as one side says, "Aha, you're going too far, by printing this unsourced story, you have egg on your face by, you know, doing this, making this very poor decision based on, uh, based on a misinterpretation of free speech that I think does rightly open you to charges of partisanship. But please, David, go ahead. Laura, put some things on the table for you to address.
1: Yeah. Uh, so it's a really interesting question. Why is there not just a, such an interest in the story, but an emotional attachment to a version of the story so that if you break ranks on the version of the story, you're going to be pummeled. So the the to understand what the psychology of what's happening, it's understand the psychology of the election denial and sort of the the substance of the election denial movement on the right. So you have sort of the hardcore version of this, which is the wild, smartmatic, Dominion Italian military satellites, ballot dumps sort of argument that is the wild conspiracy theory stuff that a lot of Republicans don't buy. But then there's this other version that says Donald Trump was robbed by an an election that was rigged by big tech. And the cornerstone of that case is this, that Twitter, at a decisive moment when there was a humiliating story for Joe Biden, shut this thing down, demonstrating A, big tech's bias, and B, big tech's power, because the bias impacted the outcome of the election. Now, my position is the censorship was bad, but it backfired. It actually gave the story far more resonance than it otherwise. Strice and
0: effect, effect stuff.
1: sand effect stuff. And interestingly enough, Philip Bump at the Washington Post had this really interesting piece where he talks about how looking at the actual search interest for Hunter Biden, And it peaked well after Twitter locked it down. So Twitter locks down the story. And then I can tell you right-wing media exploded over that. And so all of a sudden interest in the story spikes dramatically. And so my position is, yeah, what Twitter did was bad, but it wasn't actually at the end of the day, a demonstration of Twitter's awesome power it was an illustration of the in, how ineffectual and how often counterproductive, even to your stated goals, attempts to censor information are in a free society. Um, there's this phrase that comes up a lot in, in censorship contexts called um, the lure of forbidden knowledge. In other words, as soon as you know or hear that there is something that so-and-so doesn't want you to see, what is your response? Oh, I want to see it. If they don't right. want me to see it, I want to see it. And so my position was that Twitter what Twitter did was bad, but it ultimately backfired. It did not swing the election. It actually ended up amplifying the Hunter story. And how do we know that that the Hunter story wasn't much of a story actually? 2 years later, we're still talking about Twitter 10 times more than we're talking about what was actually on the laptop because what was actually on the laptop was not earth-shaking and was actually far less consequential than the Twitter decision. And that decision ultimately backfired. And the reason, Laura, why that results in the kind of pile on is because it there's two elements, remember, that big tech was biased and big tech is sort of all powerful and robbed Trump of the election. If you say big tech was biased, but you don't buy into the second part of it, then you're disrupting the narrative. And, and there is an enormous amount of narrative discipline <laughs> that occurs on the right.
0: So with the Twitter files, I don't know. I'm going to file it somewhere between unproved and unconvincing. Somewhere between there. As we go on to our final segment on the show, the things that have been getting our goats, the things that have been grinding our gears, these are our goat grinders interested to see what the, uh, the salubrious outlook of David French brings us when it comes to goat grinders. Do you have one, David?
1: Oh, I've got a goat grinder.
0: <laughs> commercials in college football. Oh,
1: unbelievable, Mike. So we're about to get into bowl season and the college football playoff. I love college football. Some of these games go 4 hours and 15, 4 hours and 20 minutes, and I feel like it's 2 hours and 20 minutes of commercials. Once you notice it, you can't unsee it, and it's it is an absolute goat grinder. So, come on college football, do better. Fewer breaks in play make me happier. I deserve it. We all deserve it. It's not who cares what I deserve. We all, America deserves fewer commercials in college football.
0: Well, luckily, we'll have a break from that when we get into the entirely uncommercialized U.S. <laughs> F&G Sugar Bowl and Poulon <laughs> Weed <Wheat> Eater <laughs> Beef O'Grady's Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lara, what is your go grinder?
2: Well, I can't help but second what David said emphatically by pointing out two additional things. First, when these commercials come on, they're at a much higher volume. So they're literally splintering your brain. And second, the repetitiveness of them. And Mike, I truly hope that BetterHelp is not the sponsor of this podcast. But I swear to God, if I hear another BetterHelp ad on a podcast, I am going to throw my phone into the wall. It's just agonizing. So, Do you really- think it's
0: an insidious ploy to get people to seek out psychological counseling to instill psychosis in them yes. from their actual commercials? It's exactly
2: right. It's making you feel bananas enough that you're going to pick up the phone and make an appointment with one of these online, probably unqualified, anonymous people. That's exactly what's happening. Or it's boomeranging and you're just thinking to yourself, I in no way, shape or form am ever going to talk to someone in a therapeutic context for the rest of my life. But, well, yeah. no. To
0: answer uh, to ahead. answer your question, BetterHelp is not, and I think now will never be an advertiser <laughs> <to> of this podcast. <laughs> My go is about not worrying. No, it's not. It's about the phrase, no worries. This phrase is terrible. And I know it's a rough equivalent to half a generation younger than no problem. But no problem rhymes essentially with Donata. It's not a problem. We got it. We handled it. But to me, no worries puts the worry back on the person who is presenting the issue. I was recently at a restaurant and long chain of events, but a guy calls ahead to make sure that his breakfast was registered on time because the kitchen closes at 1030. And he knew he'd be late. And they said, sure. And he gets there a little after 1030. Hey, where's my breakfast? The kitchen has closed. But I called ahead of time. And the guy running the kitchen, or at least the way staff said, well, no worries. Now, if the next statement isn't, and we will turn on the grill and make your breakfast, then indeed there is a worry i don't know what no worries means it's passive aggressive it's inexact it's unnecessary if you want to say it's not a problem make sure it's not a problem i'm allowed to worry don't tell me not to worry and if i'm gonna worry well i guess we can't turn to better help mike i feel attacked
2: same i say no worries
0: all the time so
2: do i like 12 times an hour (laughs) that is such a new yorker thing to say that he hates it i think
0: you guys are so zen. You're so blissful. The other
2: thing I say all the time, and this is sort of embarrassing, and I even say it in emails now, is totally. Is that going to be a problem? Yeah. No. Nope. Totally not.
0: Totally. Totally. totally fine. If yeah. it's it, it's totalizing, but who are the no worries supposed to be directed to? Totally fine. No. Wor- and the totally perfect- fine
2: no worries. I string the- those words together frequently.
1: That is the perfect way, in my view, of diffusing someone else's anxiety about something is to say. Totally fine. No worries. Like, you should not think about this. This is not something to be concerned about at all.
0: But then do you turn the grill on and cook them breakfast? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what you got to do. You got to cook them breakfast. You can't say no worries, but no eggs for you. Yeah. Well, no, of course true. you do. Well, that is it for today's show. Not Even Mad is a Peach Fish Project. The show is produced by Ian Scotto. The COO of Peach Fish Projects is Michelle Pesca, and our theme songs by Max Kerman. Content designed by Big Yellow Taxi, advertising by Lipson Advertise Cast. Email us at notevenmad at peachfishprojects.com. And we have a hashtag, notevenmad, that's alive on Twitter, the aforementioned and maligned Twitter. Mara Bazelon and her clinical students will be headed out of state soon, where they will see her client walk free after almost a quarter of a century of wrongful convictions. Watch out for that. Please, please, please. Yes, David French's new piece on repentance amidst the Southern Baptist Convention's sexual abuse scandal is the latest topic of his newsletter, The French Press. And tune in to The Gist, where we'll discuss HBO purveyors of excellent high-minded television which all started with this show what
2: is the beaver's mission why has he been brought here we shall see the
0: authors of It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO, tomorrow on The Gist. Please subscribe to Not Even Mad wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, give us a rating or review. Tell us about this iteration of hosts. We'd love to hear what you think. And until next time, we are not saying we're right. We're definitely not saying you're right. But we are Not Even Mad.